I'm, I skipped one inadvertently, but that's just the way it's going to end up being. I skipped, I guess, 19. Uh, but I did skip it, so there you have it. Um, so tonight we're doing the Heart of the Stone Image at Dakineshwar and then the Kriya, Science of Kriya. So, we've been separated for a long time. Does anybody have any questions or things that we should talk about? Thoughts that we need to deal with before we go on? Okay. Oh, yes, Lucia. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation these days as to whether or not man is really the highest animal, whether the whales are better, the dolphins are better because they can do this and do that. But the human nervous system, through the human nervous system, you can perceive infinity. And no other, no other physical entity has that capacity. Is that what you were referring to that I spoke about? Not really, because matter is an illusion. There's only energy, and there's and energy is an illusion. There's only consciousness. There's no reality to matter. Matter is is a vibration of energy. I mean, this is physics. If, if, if there's no, there is no material plane. There's only different vibrations of energy, and the vibrations of energy on this plane give the impression that there's a material universe, and our our consciousness is trapped in that dream world. Uh, we're trapped at this vibration, and so therefore we perceive a physical body. Now, um, somehow, and I'm really just, just going to have to speculate, because I don't have any realization that can really answer these questions. Um, somehow when our consciousness is identified with the body, we can, we can maintain a living relationship with that body and still have a perception of infinity. The body, the physical, the human body is capable of being refined to the point where it won't blow to pieces by, it, it, and it says in here in the Kriya Yoga chapter, all this practice of Kriya gradually refines us until we are able to receive the power. Um, and you have, to, you have to work at it. Catholic saints who didn't have Kriya go through, went through enormous physical suffering because increasing the flow of energy through the nervous system just mechanically burned up a lot of the circuits and caused a lot of things to go haywire until they got in tune with it. That doesn't happen to Kriya yogis because the process of Kriya gradually makes it more and more subtle and more and more refined. Now, no other animal body, no body that you can be identified with, can absorb enough energy to perceive infinity. That's how they say it. That's why the human birth is the highest birth. That's why we use 10% of what we've got inside. You know, the doctors and scientists cannot figure out why in such an, whereas most of creation is so efficient that the human body is so inefficient. Because we have this huge brain capacity that we don't use. And that's because we're, as, as Dr. Peter calls it, we're engineered for divinity. We're engineered to have divine perception, mostly we don't. But we can. Any, any human body is capable 
of receiving sufficient energy to perceive infinity. Um, but no animal body is. However, you know, Ramana Maharshi um, said that his cow achieved Mahasamadhi. He liberated the cow directly, but he liberated her at her death, so maybe it was he took the soul, the soul out of it. I don't know how to reconcile the thought that her cow body was able to perceive it, but maybe as that soul was exiting, he, her devotion to Ramana Maharshi was such. So, they, so he says that she just skipped the whole human stage. Lahiri Mahashaya was working on a technique for, for liberating animals directly. I, I just quote what's been said to me. I have no idea what it means. But normally speaking, you have to have a human body. So I should think of my nervous system less as neurons and nerve fibers and myelin sheaths and brains and think of it more as an extension of some, a, a, vibratory, uh, a vibratory pattern? Yes, exactly. It's a vibratory pattern that by meditation and right consciousness and affirmation and right thinking and right diet and uh, right action, it gradually becomes more and more refined until it vibrates on a completely different level than uh, it started out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's also, Master also made the statement in the Rubaiyat that the only place that God can be perceived is in the human nervous system. And that's what's meant by the body as a temple. It's not meant in the sense that in some way there's something really special about it physically which is what some people think, which is just not true at all. It's no temple physically. As Yogananda said, if you could see beneath the skin, it's just hideous. He said, people think one another are so beautiful and, you know, we have all these romantic ideas and relationships. He says, it's just really gross. But, uh, but the temple is that within, while we ourselves even remain aware and living through it, it's uh, divine consciousness is possible. I, I was thinking about it today. I feel very hot and I'm going to take off my shoes. I'm sure you all don't mind. Can we open the door? Yeah. Just barefoot makes it a little cooler. Um, uh, oh yeah. Just the absolute inescapability of our consciousness. You know, I've always been conscious and I always will be. And there's, the only possible thing we can do is change our level of consciousness. We can never get out of it. And, and so it is that we just need to keep refining and refining and refining over many incarnations. I was taking it even farther and realizing we simply have to become unaware of self. Like Yogananda, when they complimented him on his humility, he said, how can there be humility when there is no consciousness of self? I mean, the only possible freedom is to become completely unaware of ourselves without being unconscious. You know, that we just become so identified with the infinite consciousness that the fact of being in this body means nothing to us. Ananda Moima describes herself in a series of statements, you know, when I was little, when I was a girl, when I was married, and this. And then at the end of everyone she says, I, I am the same. And she describes all the stages of life with which people usually identify and feel that something is happening. And she just said, I am the same. And as you see me before you now, I am the same. Nothing has ever happened to me as far as she was concerned. Because her consciousness was always on the infinite and the body grew and the body went through experiences, but it didn't mean anything to her. 
that's our only possibility of freedom. If, as long as we're involved in this one, we're just going to be subject to this endless cycle of birth and death and suffering and disappointment and loneliness and pain and sickness and fear, just endlessly. And, and the only place that God can be experienced, the only place that infinity can be found, is right here within this entity. And it's not because it's physical, but because it's the vehicle of our consciousness at the moment. But with this vehicle, we can perceive infinity. That's what the Kriya chapter is all about. Does that make sense? It's not a small challenge, but it's the only way, it's the only doorway out. Hmm. Was there another question? Hi. Yes. I don't know if I remember reading or hearing um, talking about the uses of the brain, the percentage of it. Does that correlate to the yuga? The percentage use of the brain. I mean, I make up, I, I believe that. Is that an accurate number? 10%? We use 10% of our. Of our yeah. Um, in higher yugas, do people use more of their brains? Probably. Because one of the things that happened when it was Kali Yuga descending, when things were getting dark, was that there was a split between East and West. East maintained, the East on the planet maintained uh, an awareness of spiritual truth and the West maintained the capacity to function in the material world. But the, the East got very poor and the West got very uh, alienated spiritually. And now as we go to a higher age, it's possible for, for human beings to maintain both realities simultaneously. And so that must be a factor of a bigger, more energy flowing in from the center and therefore um, a little more awake. However, you have to understand that there's, there's avatars and saints at every stage of the planet. So we're not, um, enlightenment is not dependent upon, upon the position of the planet in relation to the yugas. However, the, whole, the, the quality of the planet shifts and it becomes a, a home for, for different kinds of souls depending on which stage of development it is. Um, you know, really gross or less gross. But don't get your hopes up too much. Swami remarked that uh, um, you have Kali Yuga, Dwapara Yuga, Treta Yuga and Satya Yuga and all the way through Treta Yuga, and we're just the beginning of Dwapara Yuga, they still have war. So if you think about that, that means that it's really not such a great planet after all. They just do it perhaps a little more dharmically. In the Mahabharata you saw, in the, with Krishna and Arjuna, you saw the disintegration of the code of honor in war. And it was very shocking. They were soldiers, but they were noble soldiers and they had their code and you only fought fair and you didn't attack from behind and you never implicated civilians and you know all these different things. And yet it was all falling apart toward the end of the Mahabharata war. So even if you have war, you could have war among soldiers who choose that as their path. But nonetheless, that would mean that conflicts and egos would still be clashing with each other. So it's a little better, but not entirely better. Yeah. Sarah? It might be. Well, he does talk about it. Breath is... Well, he talks about the... Um, I never think in these terms, so this isn't my strong suit. Um, and I'm just going to answer you in a general way. As long as we're breathing, we have this separated awareness. The, the breath keeps us 
The necessity to breathe and the restlessness created by breathing also keeps this individual perception going. When we merge, when we separate ourselves out from this individual perception and go into the breathless state, then the mind, then the level of awareness that we call the mind also ceases to be because it's all part of the, putting the pieces together here. You know, the, it's the story that Swami tells in the path that Master says, when you have the level of um, just pure perception and then you have the level where you can perceive different vibrations and objects but you have no name for them, then you begin to name things. Oh, I see, that's a horse. First it's just vibration, then it's different kinds of vibration, but still you, have, you don't discriminate. Then you start calling it, this is a horse, this is a house, this is a person. And then at the fourth level, you, you know what's, what belongs to you. This is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And then again you know your happiness becomes dependent on it. You know, so, so, so you can perceive everything as, as pure light. You can perceive the differentiated forms of things and still not relate to them as different. You can perceive life as it is in, on this plane of consciousness and relate to it, sort of like, like a master would. You know, he knows that he's building a building and it's necessary to do this and this is the force that's required and this is how we have to educate the people and this is the school and this. You see, you see all that, but there's no sense of identity with it. There's no ego involvement and there's no sense of personal dependency in terms of happiness on it. And you, sort of, you step it down. You, you can say that's mine and still not say I'm so happy because it's mine. Okay, and the breath relates to those different levels of consciousness. In order to have it be mine and be happy because it's mine, there has to be a certain uh, grossness that requires breath and a certain restlessness that requires breath. When, when the mind becomes, when the consciousness becomes so calm that all the vibrations merge, that this, then there's no need for breath either because there's no duality. There's no in and out. Everything has become still in the center. Now that's my little explanation. There's probably a better one, but that's the best I can do with that. But these are the things that I was contemplating myself reading this chapter, the Kriya chapter, which it does. It just kind of breaks your brain open a little bit of just profoundly appreciating uh, that there's really something else for us than just a nice life. You know, that just at a certain point of spiritual development, a nice life it just is not attractive because it's just a trap. To, to, to be in any, that's, this is why people come into this world and they don't marry, they don't have children, they don't get involved in anything, they just get a human body and go off to a monastery or go off to the Himalayas. They want the human body because they have enough karma to have to come back and sort of live through that. But their only wish with that human body is to realize God through it or to serve God through it as Yogananda did. This is the question that was asked way at the beginning about what is an avatar. And I remember I drew the picture of him coming out from the garden and getting on the other side of the wall and then immediately tumbling back through the wall instead of going around and exploring everything that's here. And so all of us at a certain point have explored as much as we can or want to explore. And in the autobiography it has the phrase, it's not even really that it's agony, because even agony is kind of exciting but it becomes anguishingly monotonous. And you just sort of look at it, and there it is again. You know, I'm going to fall in love, I'm going to have a family, I'm going to raise a family, we're going to die again. 
you know, I'm going to follow this career, I'm going to be world famous and I'm going to die again. I'm going to, you know, everything's going to go wrong and I'm just going to be impoverished and I'm going to die again. This is what the Buddhists describe as this wheel. And, and we can talk about this theoretically, but most of the time we're doing what we're doing and we like it. And, and then every once in a while it just comes across that um, really something completely other is required and, and inevitable. And that was what I was thinking today about the utter inescapability of consciousness. That just even as we sit here being conscious, we will elevate. We will never cease to be conscious. We will just gradually elevate our awareness more and more and more profoundly. Um, I'm sort of getting way into the Kriya chapter, which I could just skip to do, but it, that's, what the, um, that's what the whole power of the Kriya is. Maybe I'll just do it in reverse since I'm here. There are certain characteristics of this particular path, Master's path, and they're, they're really important characteristics to appreciate because it's, very, it, it's easy for people for us to forget what we have because it becomes familiar. Over-familiarity is, is, is the death of, of many beautiful love affairs, love affairs with ideas or with practices or anything, because it becomes familiar to us and we no longer recognize how unique and extraordinary it is. And, and uh, Yogananda was the avatar for the age, and, and he came with the, the message that is defining and will continue to define for centuries to come sort of the characteristics of the, of the time that we're going into on this planet. And so we have this story of Kriya Yoga, which he tells in several different chapters in this book. He tells it when materializing a palace in the Himalayas, and he tells it when he starts talking about Lahiri Mahashaya, and he, and he describes it in a, in a more general way here, that this um, method... Of, of evolving our consciousness, of, of breaking out of the slow, exceedingly slow, mechanical, just wading through and being born often enough. Um, this technique is what um, saints and masters have discovered in all paths because, as he says, it's not, uh, it's not something that anyone makes up. It's not a dogma. It's an experience. I always like, try to liken it to people. It's, it's just like medicine. You know, when they, when they say that the heart pumps in a certain way, it's because it's an observable reality. It simply does. The blood goes in one chamber, it comes out another chamber, there's an exchange of oxygen. I mean, these just things happen. It, it's not a dogma. It's just a fact. And so when the, the physicians of the soul in this powerful drive for freedom and happiness just examine more and more deeply the, the human awareness and try to understand more and more deeply who am I, why was I made, and how can I turn this experience into um, that which is both freeing and fulfilling, they discover. They discover the relationship of breath to consciousness, and they discover the relationship of the, of the chakras and the spine and all of the other elements that are involved in Kriya and discover that if you concentrate in certain ways you can um, break out of this plane of consciousness just as simple as that and and it's so um, 
the principle of Kriya Yoga completely destroys all institutional religion. And that's one of the, the, the reasons that he brought it like that, because it's the perception, the direct individual perception. It's not anybody's idea. There's no intermediary required. Um, you don't have to take anybody's word for it. It's just a direct experience that you yourself have. In church a few Sundays ago, I was telling the story of a, the autobiography of a monk that I read who was a Catholic monk, and I won't tell the whole story at length. I'll just summarize it here. He was 25 years a devoted monk from the age of 18 and became very high in his order and was the, it worked, lived in the Vatican, was close with the Pope, and just loved his life as a monk. And then he became, his family had an inclination toward ter tuberculosis, and it became, uh, it, it appeared as though his health was threatened. And he was sent from his very, very busy life to Switzerland to just recuperate. And he spent several months just sitting on the porch, looking out at this beautiful scenery, and was forbidden, essentially, to be active. And in that time, he perceived divine reality. He didn't ask for it. Um, he, didn't, he didn't do any, any of his prescribed practices to accomplish it. He just perceived uh, that God was everywhere and that all of us are, are part of that and that it is our true nature. And what happened to him was his direct perception was so at odds with the Catholic theology that he'd been trained in and taught. And he said, most Catholics don't know their own theology, he said, but I was in the unfortunate position of actually knowing it. And I saw through my direct perception that all of the dogmas were wrong, that they were somebody else that had this perception and then created a system, but the system itself was not the truth. And so he was forced to resign out of the integrity of his own position. So here is a man, and it was such an interesting story because it came upon him entirely unbidden. In fact, it was a great trauma for him that he had to resign his whole life and give it up. Um, but it was just what he perceived. And so any soul that, that is evolved enough that focuses in the right way will simply perceive that there is a reality that we need to experience. And so Yogananda came recognizing essentially that America and the planet as a whole, but particularly America, was ready for what he called practical spirituality. Because we have, he came to America very deliberately, and this is the right place for it. We're extremely independent. We have, we're very little bound by tradition. We'd like to do things ourselves. We have a real optimistic, I can do it spirit. Yogananda said he loves the spirit of Americans. He said in India they understand what a project it is to, to realize God, and therefore they're often deterred from really trying. But in America they have no idea how difficult it is, so everybody just assumes that I can do it. It's a very can-do spirit, is how Yogananda described it. So he knew that people wanted a simple, practical, non-dogmatic approach to spirituality. And so he brought it, and in this chapter, in this book, he, he hints all around it enough so that if you're at all eager, you rush to have it. You rush to find out, how can I take personal charge of my spiritual evolution? How can I myself directly experience the secret of divinity that was known by St. Paul, that was known by Krishna, you know, that was known by all these great saints, by Patanjali, all these great saints and sages. It's so interesting, you know, Master says that Paul and Christ, 
the way Master put it in another place, he said, Jesus taught his disciples Kriya Yoga or something very similar to it. You know, so you, you have this understanding that they weren't just sort of walking around serving the poor. Jesus wanted them to become perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, to perceive reality, to become like him. So he had to teach them how to break this delusion of self and ego and mind and body and all of these different points. And it, 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 it isn't complicated, even when you learn Kriya. It's not complicated inherently, but holding the mind still enough to really um, transcend, of course, is the, the fine art of doing it. And our um, role as disciples is to really appreciate on the, on the highest possible level that we did not come here just to have a nice life. And we didn't even really come here to help others have a nice life. And all the fun and beautiful things that we do as a community and so on are really quite incidental. We really came here for Kriya Yoga. And, and it's not just, we, we didn't just come here to practice Kriya because quite clearly we're not allowed to do that. But we came here um, to embrace the principle that Kriya represents. And what Kriya represents, to say it again, first and foremost, is the complete individualization of the spiritual path. And, and whatever fellowship we have, Yogananda did call it self-realization fellowship. But the reason we have the fellowship is simply to support each other in our individual efforts. And if we're not making those individual efforts in whatever form they take for us, we're really just not on this path. It just doesn't do us any good. I mean, self-evidently, those of you who have been involved at all in what we were doing last week, this is the crux of this whole dispute that we're engaged in. And I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it in terms of self-realization, because self-realization fellowship, because it gives, it gives the picture of what it is. And it's also important for us personally to really grasp the implications of what Master said, because it's... For, for, for hundreds of years you were saved if you did certain things you know the Catholics were, have worked it out to a fine science of you know how many how much you can sin and what you have to do to expiate it and you know the certain kinds of penances and this and this and this all because they've taken a divine reality and made it so human that it just has to become more and more and more human but and, and what SRF has begun to do is they have begun to insert themselves as an institution and your relationship to SRF becomes a key defining factor in whether you actually have a relationship with God and Guru. And so that it begins that the institution begins to command the Lord and is going to say whether Gurus are going to take care of you, whether God is going to bless you. You know, and those of us last week were told things like, well, it's really, you know, it's true that the Kriya that we do, do doesn't work because it doesn't have the blessings of the guru because it's not from, from SRF. I mean, it's just ludicrous, completely ludicrous from our point of view. But once you start down that road of thinking that some entity other than an individual's direct perception is the, is the arbiter of whether something is spiritual or not, there really is no limit to how far you can go on it. Um, one of my favorite things in Autobiography of a Yogi, not in this edition, but in the orange edition, 
in the back of it, there's a sentence that says, um, the line of gurus will take lifelong responsibility for the members of Self-Realization Fellowship and YSS who faithfully practice Kriya. Now, you know, it's just you can make mincemeat of that sentence, which I have done in my mind, not yet on the web. But it's, but it's a question, and it's, it's pertinent to what I'm doing. I'm not just going off track here. But the question is, okay, first, the gurus are only with you if you, do, if you join this certain organization. And then more than that, joining isn't enough. You also have to practice. But then you have all these obvious questions. Well, what if I join for a while and practice faithfully, but then I stop practicing? Do the gurus then withdraw their sense of support for me? And if so, how soon? Like, how much grace period do I have? Do I have a month? Do I have six, six weeks? What if I keep practicing Kriya, but I let my membership lapse? And what happens, what happens in my childhood? Like, maybe I was a disciple last life, and the gurus just, like, wait, and I'm just completely on my own until I get old enough to join SRF? And what about the nine months between when I join and when I get Kriya initiation? You know, all that sounds ridiculous, but that's how the Catholics end up with unbaptized babies in limbo, right? Because you were saved because of what you did, and then people ask just these kinds of questions, because you have to be able to answer them. And, and they have it all defined, just how many times you can miss Mass before you really have to go to hell, and, and what penances you might be able to do to make it up, because it's kind of a grim prospect. I remember, and... Uh, you know, the, the fundamentalists have it that until you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you're just damned. Savitri, who grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, with parents who were quite committed to the Baptist church. I mean, Baptist was just life. Life at the Baptist church was just life, as far as she knew. And from the time a child is born, its parents are exceedingly anxious that that child accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, because if by any chance you should die, you'll just go to hell. That's it. It's too bad. But you just never accepted the Savior, and that was that. So Savitri said the pressure on her as a child was just unbearable. She was the only child of her devout mother, and her mother was determined that they should be in heaven for eternity together. And unless Savitri, you know, accepted Lord Jesus Christ, they were in a lot of trouble. Finally, Savitri said when she was 10, she just decided she just better do it. And she went down the aisle at church and she said she knelt in front of the altar rail and inwardly she looked up at the cross or whatever was up there and said, I want you to understand, Jesus, I have no quarrel with you, but I'm just doing this to get my mom off my back. <laughs> but you see what hypocrisy and absurdity begins to develop and how people will also be devotees because they're afraid. It becomes social pressure and it becomes guilt and it becomes fear. Now guilt and fear is not religion. Guilt and fear is, is, is psychological imbalance. And all of that guilt and fear does not come from God. And I'm outraged that SRF would place conditions upon the Guru's blessings of us. Now there are conditions upon the Guru's blessings, but it's, it's defined by Christ. As many as received him. That's what he says. And how do you receive him? By being in his own vibration, in his vibration of love. I mean, it's nobody, there's no exchange of membership roles, you know, between you know, the gurus sort of check off who they're going to take care of now and check them, throw the index cards away. Or, or more than that, that, that God will only bless you if you behave properly. 
You know, if you practice your kriyas, then God will bless you. If you don't, then he won't. I mean, that's a very, very human thought. And it's not, but it's not our thought. When we get in trouble is when Divine Mother is the more with us, the more helpless and hopeless we are. Think of the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returns, the father lavishes his affection upon him. You know, the more so because we've been in trouble, not because we're, we're lost when we're suddenly in trouble. And all of that really comes down to Kriya because it comes down to the fact that it's all about our own consciousness. And the only place that God can be experienced is within our own nervous system. And, and more than that, then Master defined for us from the yogis of India, from Babaji, from Lahiri, look, there are very simple, specific things that you can do that anybody can do anywhere. You know, you can be in a prison cell, you can be uh, just anything. You don't have to, you don't, nobody has to know. When Lahiri gave people Kriya, he swore them to secrecy. Disciples of Lahiri didn't, they could be friends and not know they were both disciples. He, he wanted it at that time, I don't know why, but at that time he wanted it to be kept completely secret. No organization, no publicity, nothing. He just sat in his room in Varanasi and radiated divine light and people came to him. But it was completely unknown what he, who he was or what he was. Trilanga Swami, who was so extraordinarily famous, you know, the master said, if Jesus Christ were to walk the streets of New York, it would create no more of a sensation than Trilanga Swami created. I mean, that's how extraordinary he was. Trilanga Swami bowed at the feet of Lahiri Mahashaya. And everyone around just thinks, why is he bowing to this government accountant who lives, you know, back there in that district with his sons? It was just like unfathomable because he had none of the accoutrements. He wasn't a renunciate even. He had none of the accoutrements, but he had Kriya Yoga. And he just day after day, hour after hour, day and night, just attuned himself by the simple exercise of the breath. Of course, he was an avatar, but he, and he taught everyone else how to do it. Just come to me. I don't care if you're a Muslim. I don't care if you're a Hindu or a Catholic or whatever you are. Just come. And however you're defining divinity has nothing to do with divinity anyway. You know, do you think the infinite really fits into our little boxes? It's just ludicrous. It's just a, a little game that we play. And God lets us do it, just like if a child is playing with a teddy bear or a dolly, a little doll, you don't say, oh, that's just a stupid doll. You know, the doll, you come and say, oh, my dolly broke its arm. And you say, oh, here, let me fix its arm. And because the child, in doing that, it gives it something to focus, its care and its... Uh, its affection and, and through that a child begins to understand you know sort of how to think about a reality other than oneself and um, to be a caregiver and, and to be responsible in all these different ways it's just a game and it's just a facade but what the child learns through it is not is not shallow at all and so with us we have all these different ideas about spirituality and it's fine. I mean, Swami Kriyanand himself created ritual for us. We, we come together every Sunday and we go through this whole festival of light time after time. It's not that ritual is, is uh, not beneficial. It's profoundly beneficial because we have these wildly crazy, restless minds that need to anchor somewhere. If we become too austere about it, 
often in our austerity we actually set ourselves back instead of taking ourselves forward we, we have the, the repetition each week of the festival and the ceremony involved and the words involved so that on deeper and deeper and deeper levels those simple truths will penetrate into our awareness but coming to church doesn't make you a spiritual person you know being a member of Ananda doesn't make you a spiritual person at all but what you can learn here if you use it in your life if you act upon it yourself then it will make you a spiritual person why? because it will change your consciousness it's only about consciousness it's not about form and you can be you know in a Catholic monastery and be a very great saint you can be in a very uh, you know narrow small situation Padre Pio in recent times was a priest in southern Italy very devoted to the Catholic Church he, he did the Mass and he had the marks of Christ on his body which he received as a very young man and created such a sensation with his piety and with his spirituality and with the uh, extraordinariness of what, what he was and what he had one of the reasons we know less about him there was a period of time in the, in the 20s and 30s I think he was that it came to him when he was in his early 20s at one point he was the most photographed man on the planet but the Catholics don't like that the Catholic Church doesn't like that because they have a dogma that says it's the, it's the church that ordains priests that the power of the priest comes from the ordination of the church and so if some priests are clearly more ordained than others it blows out their system and so they, they buried him they sent him off and for seven years he was in seclusion he was forbidden to do mass in public and every day by himself he would just do the mass completely alone he had to sue the church he had to get a, he had this whole system for him to get out of that isolation and then it was forbidden to photograph him and so the photographs that you do have are, are bootlegged ones films and so on but nonetheless in the midst of that system I mean he was a, uh, an extraordinary great saint and there's a, incredible tales told about his ability to be in different places at different times and there was a, stories from World War II of certain pilots uh, on, you know, on dangerous bombing raids and he was, they saw Padre Pio in the sky escorting them and protecting them and when somebody who was part of uh, self-realization went, or no wasn't yet part of self-realization went to see Padre Pio and was asking him what he should do for his spiritual life Padre Pio says you should join SRF this was a story told to Swamiji and the man said what's SRF and Padre Pio says I don't know but that's what I was told to tell you <laughs> and years later he found SRF and someone else went to Padre Pio for confession and said father you should know I practice yoga and Padre Pio says shh don't talk about it here but you're doing the right thing right because he wasn't getting his spirituality from the church he was a spiritual person who happened to be in the church he got his spirituality directly from his relationship to God and whatever the Lilo was designed for him he had to act it out in that church he's become virtually the patron saint of Italy these days you know the kind of accolades that Mother Teresa receives that's what Padre Pio receives and they've already started the beatification process and you just go to Italy it's, he's just everywhere and he should be okay but the point being of all of that is that it isn't, has nothing to do with form 
And every time any little thought crosses your mind in, in any way that your spirituality is dependent on anything external, anything other than your consciousness, and in a very real peculiar sense, it's not even dependent on your practice of Kriya. That's why I resent, for the sake of the devotees, what SRF has said there. If you practice, they'll take care of you. If you are in tune, they will take care of you. If you receive him, they will take care of you. If you screw up completely but throw yourself at the feet of the Lord and beg for mercy, they'll take care of you. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is open yourself to receive it and it's there for you. The only way you can keep God and the Gurus out is by absolutely refusing to receive that power. What happens is that they wait. Now, the reason we want to do Kriya is because Kriya really helps us keep it straight. And also it just helps us liberate ourselves from this incredible, terrible burden of all the past karma that we're accumulating. I mean, that's the biggest have accumulated. That's the biggest thing that burdens us. All of us have such a sincere and heartfelt desire, you know, to be in a more elevated state of consciousness, to behave more perfectly, to be free of our desires, to not be compelled by our emotions. And we all know it, and yet, and yet, you know, this morning, tomorrow, yesterday, just something grabs us again and again. And when we get into the study of uh, the way spirituality works, we find out about the chakras, we find out about these vortices of energy that are created by our past karma, we find out about how from lifetime to lifetime that astral pattern of our accumulated karma goes with us when we die and defines our next incarnation and creates the magnetic field. You know, we're walking around all the time. We are, we are a big magnetic field that's created out of the vibrations in each of our chakras. And it's, the, it's a, f- a field of magnetism like that that's drawing to us our experiences, our repelling experiences, and it's an exact mathematical relationship between the energy that we ourselves have made ourselves into and what comes to us now. And, and we're, we're a victim of it, in a sense, in the sense that it defines us. No matter what we hope for, we're still defined by it. What Kriya does is Kriya alters that pattern directly. That's why uh, Swami t- uh, Master talks about it. You know, the six, uh, the six chakras, the, the breath goes up and down, it corresponds to the zodiac, it's like a whole year of living in a year of living, you have experiences and you learn something. Oh, when I behave like that, this is the consequences. Oh, that was very painful. I don't want to go through that again. Oh, this was such a joyful attitude. This is what I want to do. And so a year passes and we've altered our awareness because of the experiences that we've had. And altering our awareness means that we've changed the pattern in our chakras. You know we have more love, perhaps, or more willpower, perhaps, or more calmness, more sense of, of divinity, or, or worse, we become emotional, we become sick, we become overcome with ego, all sorts of things happen. But insofar as our consciousness has shifted at all, what has shifted is the pattern of energy in the chakras. If you change that pattern, all of reality is different. Totally. Everything is different. Your destiny is different, your life experience is different, your future is different, your past is eradicated, it's, it's over. That's why in the 
chapter it says for the you know for the perfected kriya yogi he's only influenced by the soul consciousness not by the forces of karma because there are no forces of karma because karma is just these vortices of energy and what you're doing when you're doing kriya is you're literally dissolving the vortices there's a, there's a seed thought form of of a memory of karmic experience there's a, a all the energy that's gone in around it let's say you had a traumatic experience at a young age and how many thousands of times have you thought about it or the way you were raised or the influences of your parents and all the times that you've thought about it creates this huge vortex of energy and you we try to unravel it with experience and with willpower and with so on like this what kriya does is it goes right to the center to the core energy and with the force of the prana the, the life force going up and down the spine it dissolves that energy you take away the core of the vortex there's no vortex anymore and so you you shave off literally thousands and thousands of years off of your normal life experience and also you see once you have that power in your hand you see it completely liberates you from everyone completely liberates you from the needs for priests or absolution or anything like that once you have it in your hand your fate your destiny is your own and that's why the power of kriya is so profound and that's why master writes about it in here and that's why his message is kriya yoga baba ji has planned the salvation of this age and and the key to that is the practice of kriya yoga because life is so complicated for us here you know we can't just become renunciates we can't just go to the himalayas we can't just go to monasteries it just doesn't work like that the complexities of modern life just don't lend themselves to it but the complexities of modern life lend themselves perfectly absolutely perfectly to the practice of kriya because we're scientific we're practical we're independent we focus our minds we have the power in our own hands and and it's very very important as self-realizationists that we never for one minute forget that the power is in our hands now of course that power the power of kriya is also related to the power of being a disciple so it's not an ego power but it's the it's it's the guru given power by deeper longer thirsty guru given meditation comes comes the celestial samadhi it says in that poem so it, but but it's just our relationship and it is true that the faithful practice of kriya does attract the blessings of the guru but only if it's done in that spirit and it's not because anybody tells you so but because if you practice kriya faithfully then you will dissolve the seeds of karma that hold you away from the infinite and you will begin to have an experience not because somebody promises it to you but because it's just a fact whether it comes to you in cosmic clouds of glory or whether it comes in this almost imperceptible gradual increase of freedom and joy but one way or another you just simply become a different person and that is the power of kriya now any comments or thoughts or questions yes Pra- I didn't, what, did, so what was how, how, oh, we do require formal we do right uh huh so how does that um fit with it being a key to salvation for the sage well discipleship is 
Well, the first sentence of Autobiography of a Yogi is the search for eternal verities in the concomitant disciple-guru relationship because discipleship is fundamental to salvation. And if one has the karma to be drawn to this path, then the, the Kriya... It's, I mean, when I say it's for the salvation of this age, not everybody's going to be uh, uplifted. But it's, it's, the, it's the right kind of technique for this age. Now, of course, you know, many people do other kinds of practices, which are everything is similar, because there's only one way to truth. It's the, it's the key to salvation for this age for those who are drawn to it. I don't know how else to say it than that. Because I'm not talking about some worldwide movement where everybody's going to become a self-realizationist. There's not a chance. Um, but it's a, it's a gift to this age for those souls who are really, really seeking in a particular way. That's more, that's more what I meant. It's, un, it's, it's the, the, the avatar of this time has given this as his message. But not everybody on the planet is, an, is a disciple of that avatar, although many, many people are. You know, it, it will be over time, so Yogananda says, become just more or less the accepted pattern, self-realization. And Yogananda said in time, you know, his, his arrival in this whole line of gurus will be recognized as the definitive force for the age in which we're living. But there'll be other masters who will also teach, are and will be, and they'll teach similarly, if, and they'll teach appropriately for their uh, people. For the West at this time, the characteristics of Kriya are uniquely suited. That's what I mean to say when I say that. Right, okay. Any other questions? All right, let's take about 10 minutes. It isn't very hot tonight. One more thing. Yes, Stephanie. He's <laughs> <laughs> really trying to get across a message with this play, which he really does, but he does it in a very entertaining way. I mean, this is... <laughs> yeah, Robert's in it. Um, okay, you should be in it. I mean, you're very good. They've never... They've never... I make a much better audience. Do you? You're a good actress. Um, next time they need a woman, we'll recommend you. Okay, this, the other chapter that I'll just touch on somewhat is the Heart of a Stone Image chapter. And there's many aspects of this chapter which are really lovely. Not the least of which is, you know, there's, there's many ways in which Yogananda's path inter, intertwines with the life of Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna was a great um, avatar who lived in India in the last century. His, his most well-known disciple Vivekananda lived into this century. And Ramakrishna was a revolutionary in India because he was the one who, who put forth that all paths are the same. It's a message now that, you know, the unity of religion is becoming, of religions is becoming kind of a common message, but it hasn't, it's only very recently that this thought has really come forward. And Sri Ramakrishna um, was, was the first in India to really demonstrate it, and he demonstrated it in a most peculiar manner in that he himself embraced the sadhana of all these different traditions. And he would, he would do the practices as they were recommended with full passion until by doing them he realized divine consciousness. He proved that the paths were true. Devotion to Krishna, a devotion to um, Rama, a devotion to Shiva, uh, the tantric path, the, the way of the devotee, the jnana yoga path, he just did all these different things, and each one he would, the Christian path, he would do each one 
to the exclusion of everything else as if it was the only reality there was until he had an experience of divine consciousness. And most of Ramakrishna's life was played out at this, it's what's known as the Kali temple at Dakineshwar. Dakineshwar is a place. It's the town uh, a little bit outside of Calcutta. And this wealthy family built a temple there. And there, uh, it was a bit unusual in that there was a big temple to the Divine Mother's Kali. There was also a temple to Radha Krishna. And there were also these, all these little temples to Shiva. So you go there and it's sort of all there together. Ramakrishna was hired as a priest. He was of the priestly caste. And his job, he was the pujari, which just means priest. He was responsible for the care and the worship of, the, of Kali. When you build a temple like that, you have to take care of it. You have to follow the rituals according to the Indian custom. You can't just build it and neglect it. In fact, uh, one of our friends, Shabindu Lahiri, who was the great-grandson of Lahiri Mahashaya, he and his wife, actually his wife has passed away now, but he and his family, had his father had this very large, very large house in Varanasi. Whereas Lahiri Mahashaya's own house is really quite modest, Shabindu's father, who was a grandson of Lahiri, lived in quite a large home. And right in the center of the courtyard of Shabindu's home is a little temple, which is a Shiva temple. There's also now statues of Lahiri, but this Shiva temple right in the middle. And we visited there for a number of years, and one day, finally, Shabindu said to us, um, have you ever wondered how my family could acquire such a home as this? You know, we just weren't astute enough about real estate to really think about it, but when he mentioned it, it really was actually quite something. All of Lahiri's house would fit in there twice or three times. And he said that this family bought the property with the Shiva temples there. And they hired some priests to take care of the Shiva temples because the temples have just been, the temple has been there for just a long, long time. Shortly after they bought the property, the family started having all kinds of catastrophic things happen to them, just a terrible run of bad luck. And they finally went to some um, sage or seer and inquired, you know, what, what is happening to our family? And they traced it down to the difficulties began shortly after they acquired this property with the temple on it. And then the family, which didn't live in the house, went and found out that the Pujari was not taking care of the temple. And the temple was being desecrated. And, and the, the sage advised them that, well, you, you know, to own such a temple you, is a responsibility. And if you, if you neglect it, just like what happened with Master at Tarakeshwar, when he refused to bow to the image, then all these things were set in motion. So the, the family realized that they could not take care of this temple properly, so they looked for an honest Brahmin who would take care of it. And Shabindu's father, there were, I think, five sons in the family, if I'm not mistaken at that point, and they were all crowded into a very small house, and so he offered them, if he would promise to take care of it, then they gave him the property. And so Shabindu's uh, his father took over the property in order to care for the temple. Now, the, the taking care of the temple is all very ritualized. It's all part of what our friend in India said makes it impossible for a Hindu to practice his own religion. He has to hire a priest to do it. 
and that's the that's not Kriya Yoga. That's just Hinduism. The same as our Christianity is not Catholicism. It's just the teaching of Jesus. So uh, Ramakrishna was hired to take care of this Kali statue. Now we think in our minds of a statue of Divine Mother. I was just making pictures to put up a, an altar in Gary McSweeney's classroom for the children. And I have been very happy to have finally gotten a picture of the statue of Mother Mary at Fatima. I visited that statue. I was very moved by that statue. And it's particularly, to my eyes, a beautiful, just sweet and beautiful picture of the image of Mary that appeared to the children at Fatima. So you go to... Uh, India and you think, you know, here's a picture of Divine Mother, but Divine Mother is, this is Mother Kali and she's black and she has her tongue out and she's carrying skulls, it's such a, you know, it's just not a sweet picture. Yogananda describes it as Mother, Divine Mother as Mother Nature, which is a sort of a simplification for Westerners, but she's talking about the creating and destroying aspect of Divine Mother, which is what Mother Nature is. Kali is the very impersonal you know, it's, it's, she brings rain down on the crops and then she brings hail and freezing weather down on the crops. You know, it's just sort of what happens. And so this statue in this temple where uh, Master went was also Master Mahashaya was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. And, and Master says in that chapter that he and Master Mahashaya made many pilgrimages to this temple. So the whole, that whole temple ground, which is really one of the holiest places in India, when you go to that temple, you just you step onto the, that ground and you just know you're on holy ground. And it was blessed by Ramakrishna himself and Master Mahashaya. And then Yogananda went there many, many, many times because it was right outside of Calcutta. And it was well known as one of the holiest places there. So it, in his, uh, when, when Yogananda was appealed to by his sister, it was an obvious environment to take um, the brother-in-law into because it was such a holy place. And there was such a strong atmosphere there. And it also, um, I, I was writing in the notes, you know, Yogananda gives credit to Divine Mother even before the miracle is performed. He, in his humility, he recognizes because he has no consciousness of self, just as I was starting at the beginning, when a, a great saint has no consciousness of self. And everybody around is always trying to paste on him a consciousness of self. Um, Swamiji, speaking of Master, uh, objects so profoundly to the enormous personalization, especially by SRF, and but by, by many of the, the disciples who didn't understand that Master, it was not him. There was, no, there was no Yogananda to think was so special. What made him so extraordinary was that there was no consciousness of him as a separate entity. He was just a, a, a divine force. And so when he when he speaks of Divine Mother, as he himself said, I'm not, it's not that he was being humble, there was no humility, there was no self to be humble. It was just an awareness, he was constantly aware of the infinite force acting upon all of us. So he takes his sister and his brother-in-law um, to this temple and, and Yogananda goes and sits and uh, the temple is, uh, I was going to bring pictures tonight, but I forgot to speak to David early enough. But the, the image is, is very small in sort of, uh, there are these big steps up and these doors that open, then it's set back. It's sort of like the image would be about where the altar is and maybe a little closer. 
you can come to about here and the image sits there and there, there's these long stairs that come up and on the other side of the stairs there's, a, there's an open patio and then um, a portico with a roof and just pillars and you can sit right in the doorway I mean I know this spot exactly you can sit right in the doorway leaning up against it and you can look directly when the doors are open right at the image and this sort of portico is where they have sometimes musical events and then there's a big uh, temple ground you know it's like as big as a football field the whole temple ground with um, hot stones when, uh, I have been there where the ground burned your feet just like he was describing because you have to leave your shoes outside and so he came in and, and sat just right in that spot and he talks about five hours six hours of devotional meditation just praying for this image knowing I mean, it's so powerful because Ramakrishna that statue was alive for Ramakrishna he would converse with Divine Mother he would be doing the evening worship and carrying out these rituals but it wouldn't be for him a ritual because the, there would be a living form an active speaking interacting form that looks like a statue but to Ramakrishna's eyes he would see that, that uh, the power of the spirit was really in the statue it could be alive and so Yogananda coming in and of course he'd had um, all that relationship with M Master Mahashaya you know he was so close with Master Mahashaya that Master had to say I am not your guru and, and he, you know that many times he must have come out there and experienced that divine setting and, and knew the uh, power that was there and still five hours he had to meditate mother you came to Ramakrishna I know that you're living in there where are you, where are you sometimes God makes us work hard Yogananda says my worry and then he plays out that extraordinary story of being able to perceive the consciousness of his brother and just see it and just sort of read his mind and infuse him in who knows what way it's such a, um, a miraculous story really that the man would be so worldly and then Divine Mother should so arrange it that he would just come out of his delusion and from that day forward live very differently you know my, my husband now our bedroom is our meditation room and our, the little meditation room is the place that we sleep and he takes on this great austerity because I have not respected your brother Yogananda I won't speak to him until I grow deeper in the spiritual path and so suddenly you just see this power and determination and it all it all comes back to what I was talking about with Kriya Yoga there just comes a point in our evolution whether it comes upon us suddenly as it came upon him Satish do I have his name correctly um, where it just comes upon you suddenly where you just realize that life has a purpose and we need to get on with it you know whatever other responsibilities we may find ourselves engaged in or whatever karmas we may find ourselves acting out we suddenly recognize that none of this makes any difference the only thing that really matters is that I focus my attention on shifting my consciousness and so Yogananda talks about how years later he spent hours and hours you know meditating it's just such a uh, such a thrilling picture of, of, of life change and then the, the way the story ends you know with his, his sister having this complete awareness of the hour of her death and this complete indifference you know it's fine I've done what I came to do here 
um, one of the traditions, uh, traditional stories is that they say that you should live in this world like a servant in a rich man's house and you know your home is in the village is how they put it and even though you're working there and you're taking care of the children as if they were your own taking care of the home as if it was yours you always know that your home is somewhere else and that the day will come when you'll just walk away and go back to where you really belong and so we have this picture from Master Sister Roma of just, you know, living in this world, doing exactly what she was supposed to do, but she knew today that Divine Mother was calling her home. She dressed in her wedding finery. I mean, what a picture. This is my last day of service to you on earth. And then she just has a heart attack. Don't bother to go to the doctor. It's all over for me. I mean, what a perfect reality. What a great gift from Yogananda. What he, he, she had taken care of him as a child and undoubtedly earned great good karma for herself. And then he blessed her by blessing her husband and also blessing her with this wonderful capacity. And then he has become such a great saint himself. You know, you thought you could get away from me, but you can't. And shortly thereafter, he just says, I have no life here either, and then I'm gone. I mean, it's, it's so important, these stories, not only for the power of God and the power of divine change and everything that's in it, but for the example of those devotees. You know, whether it's our karma to be able to be that clear or not, we can live with that attitude of why cling to this world? Why, why make the mistake of thinking that it really matters what happens here? That's what I was contemplating this afternoon when I was sort of feeling the fact that I'm always going to be conscious. You know, it's just, it was an overwhelming thought. And that's actually what drove me to the path, was the realization that I would always be me and I just had to do something about it. That there was just no way out. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It makes great sense to me. I'm just here and if it's, if it's crummy inside of here, I just have to do something about it. Nothing will ever fix it. And, but just realizing we live in this world, we participate in this world, but we have to be completely detached from it. You have to, be, you have to act as if it matters. Because if you don't put out energy, if you don't do your job correctly, you just have to come back until you do it well. You don't get out of things, as Swamiji said to me once, by doing them badly. That's not detachment, because that's usually just laziness. You have to put out all the energy there is, but with a complete sense of what difference does it make. Swamiji has so often said, you know, you, you, he has all these different things, but he could walk away from it in a moment. And, and he, he often suggests as a practice, every night, just take everything you have and just burn it up in the divine fire. When you do your meditation, when you're doing your kriyas, the inner fire ceremony, just offer it up. Your husband, your wife, your children, your job, everything, little precious things that you bought, all the stuff in your house, just offer it up. Just burn it up every single night. Because someday you're going to be snatched away from it. Maybe tonight, maybe you'll just be walking home and be hit by a car. You never know. And in that moment, what do you want to be thinking of? I'll tell you one more story before I quit. My friend Paula, who's now dead, she died of cancer a couple of years ago. She was a great soul. Master Swami actually said that he thought she might have been completely free. And she certainly had that spirit. She was utterly kind. She was just the kindest person I've ever known. Completely so. But she was a buyer for one of the clothing stores. And she loved clothes. I mean, when her husband cleaned out her belongings, he just discovered 
closet after closet and drawer after drawer, things he'd never seen. He didn't even know she had. You know, it was just a feast for all of us. We just, it all got passed out and, you know, all of us have some little something of Paul's because she had wonderful taste besides. But uh, she was a kind of easygoing person, not real systematic, but she, she was an incredibly intuitive person. She was at a gift show. She was buying clothing for the, the store that she was helping to manage. She had, a bad, she had a bad cough, and she had some codeine cough medicine. And being sort of unsystematic, she was just kind of sipping it every so often. <laughs> right? And uh, she overdosed, and she was alone in the motel, a hotel room. She, she had friends in the same hotel, but she was alone in the hotel room. She realized that she was going out because she'd just taken too much of this narcotic. And she just had this thought that somehow she, if she could get into the bathroom and get water on her face or something, I mean, she was... And so she got into the bathroom and she sort of collapsed next to the toilet bowl, sort of trying to get water out of the bathtub like that. And she began, uh, she was staring down into the toilet bowl. And she thought, I'm going to die staring into this toilet bowl. (laughs) And she saw the tunnel of light. She felt herself sort of going into the tunnel of light. And, and then she thought about an outfit that she had on layaway. <laughs> because that day she found a really nice outfit and she put it on layaway. She's going to go back the next day and pick it up. You know, just this thought about that, that particular outfit. And she came back out of the tunnel. <laughs> it pulled her right back into the material world. And that's something. And, and she still struggled for an hour or so before she was really... Uh, out of the danger zone. I said, Paula, did you buy it? She said, oh, no, never. (laughs) But it was a real uh, instructive moment that she's going into the light and she's thinking about some clothes that she's been wanting. Now, of course, it was it was divinely meant because it wasn't her time to go. She had she did die relatively young, but she didn't die staring into the toilet bowl. (laughs) But that's really what happens is that you begin to feel your life as you know it slipping away from you. You begin to lose your identity, you begin to lose control of your body, you begin to realize you're not going to be able to do the things you did, and literally as you go into the light, everything else that you're more interested in than the light begins to come in. And you have to develop real power to just be able to let it go. That's what we practice every day with meditation. So you practice with your kriyas, you practice just becoming the flow of energy and not the body, not the mind, not the things that you're attracted to. Because you're practicing for death, not because life is just a preparation for death, but you're practicing to transcend this life. I mean, we get a chance every time we die to see whether we've learned anything. And so death is really the final exam of life every time. And that's why death is so profoundly important, because we get the chance to leave it all behind and to go into a higher state of consciousness and we find out what we're made of. You know, have I, really, have I really come to understand that I am one with the infinite and I don't need any of this? Or in the moment that the light comes to me, am I going to be thinking about my house and my clothes and my kids? I mean, if you do, that just brings you right back. I mean, fast and right back to the same situations. If you just are able to see in that moment, it was all just a dream of Divine Mother. And Divine Mother is all that I was ever experiencing in all those forms. It's not that you love them less, it's that you recognize them for what they really are. 
which is that they're just other vibrations of light and there's the light you don't have to cling to all these forms I know uh, there was a woman whose mother was quite elderly and she was in a nursing home she was 90 or something or 95 and they had surrounded her with all these pictures of her family and it was like you know like that was this big thing and I thought at a certain point you don't want to have any of that stuff you'd want to die staring at all those faces of all those people because you don't want to you don't want to die with the thought that they're your people you know they've been there they've done their thing they're they're gone in India people renounce the world at the end and walk away from everything spend the end years of their life completely separated from everything they were just doing it in advance so that you can do it really powerfully because how you go out determines where you go from there and so you really want to take advantage of that to the fullest extent that's your Kriya if you've learned to go breathless through your Kriya if you've learned to turn off the senses then when death comes you just know how to do it oh my, my sight is going oh my hearing is going oh my body is going oh my breath is going and you don't think oh, oh what's happening you just think well here we go except this time we won't come back you know it's great freedom we just go on to a higher state of awareness and then if we do come back into a body we come back with a deeper spiritual consciousness it's really quite fun if our culture wasn't so incredibly sick and confused we'd all be having a lot more fun doing this and maybe our little sort of enclave of right thinking can gradually become not such an aberration but more of the norm God willing because self-realization has come to unite all religions and liberate us from these silly superstitions and fears okay that's my story for tonight we'll see you next week